Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. They do a great job. You can find out more by visiting johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have a terrific guest for today's show, including uh, Bob Levy, the chairman of the Cato Institute, will be joining us. Uh, we'll, also, we'll be visiting about gun control and the Second Amendment. Andrew Jopper, professor and author of Josephus of Oz, will be joining us. And Larry Bell, he's an author of several books. He's, his latest is What Makes Humans Truly Exceptional. He's also an endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture, a big deal in the space program back in the day. We'll visit with uh, Professor Bell as well. It is June the 9th, and on this day in 1954, in a dramatic confrontation, Joseph Welsh, special counsel for the U.S. Army, lashed out at Senator Joseph McCarthy during hearings on whether communism had infiltrated the U.S. armed forces. Welsh's verbal assault marked the end of McCarthy's power during the anti-communist hysteria of the Red Scare in America. Senator McCarthy... He was a Republican from uh, Wisconsin, experienced a meteoric rise to fame and power in the U.S. Senate when he charged in February 1950 that hundreds of known communists were in the Department of State. In the years that followed, McCarthy became the acknowledged leader of the so-called Red Scare. Uh, this uh, Red Scare, a time when millions of Americans became convinced that communists had infiltrated every level of American life. Behind closed-door hearings, McCarthy bullied, lied, and smeared his way to power, destroying many careers and lives in the process. Prior to 1953, the Republican Party tolerated his annex because his attacks were directed mainly against the Democratic administration of Harry S. Truman. When Republican Dwight D. Eisenhower entered the White House in 1953, McCarthy's reckless and increasingly erratic behavior became unacceptable, and the senator saw his clout slowly ebbing away. In the last-ditch effort to revitalize his anti-communist crusade, McCarthy made a critical mistake. He charged in early 1954 that the U.S. Army was soft on communism. As chairman of the Senate Government Operations Committee, McCarthy opened hearings into the Army. Joseph N. Welsh, a soft-spoken lawyer with an incisive wit and intelligence, represented the Army. During the course of the weeks of the hearings, Welsh blunted every one of McCarthy's charges. The senator, in turn, became increasingly enraged, bellowing, point of order, point of order, point of order, screaming at, at witnesses and declaring that one highly decorated general was a disgrace to his uniform. On June the 9th, 1954, McCarthy again became agitated at Welsh's steady destruction of each of his arguments and witnesses. In response, McCarthy charged that Frederick G. Fisher, a young associate in the Welsh's law firm, had been a longtime member of the organization that was a legal arm of the Communist Party. Welsh was stunned. As he struggled to maintain his composure, he looked at McCarthy and declared, Until this moment, Senator, I think I never really gauged your cruelty or your recklessness. It was then that McCarthy's turn to be stunned into silence as Welsh asked, Have you no sense of decency, sir, at long last? The audience of citizens and newspapers and television reporters burst into wild applause. Just a week earlier, or later, the hearings in the U.S. Army came to a close. McCarthy, exposed as a reckless bully, was officially condemned by the U.S. Senate for his contempt against his colleagues in December 1954. During the next two and a half years, McCarthy spiraled into alcoholism. Still in office, he died in 1957. <clears throat> uh, I, I also... Uh, understood, and this could be apocryphal, but understood that he uh, had a brain tumor. And if this is the case, it may have led to his erratic and bullying behavior. Who knows? But the point is, it was a dark moment in American history and in the U.S. Senate. Students and staff in Collier County Schools will soon have the option to not wear face masks on school grounds. That, according to a school board decision made uh, yesterday, Collier School Board voted unanimously to make masks optional in the district starting this summer and continuing in the 2021-22 school year. The measure, which takes effect June the 21st, follows a statewide trend of loosening COVID protocols and mask policies during school districts. 
across school districts. Waves of applause filled the auditorium as about 50 speakers urged board members to end the mask requirement. Many commentators also spoke against student vaccine requirements, which are currently not in place, and the board members agreed. Uh, I will never vote for a mandatory vaccine for our students. That was according to board member Roy Terry. That's a decision that needs to be made by his parents, by parents, and I couldn't agree more. Congratulations, board member Terry. That was a good decision. Well, Governor Ron DeSantis was defiant during an appearance on uh, Tucker Carlson tonight, last night, rejecting any potential forthcoming pushback from out-of-state entities that threatened punitive action against the Sunshine State for signing into law legislation that would protect women's sports. He told Tucker Carlson, you could not be cowed uh, by so-called woke corporations. This is, well, this is interesting, Tucker. He said, I think as these bills were going through various legislatures, I remember the NCAA putting out a statement said that any state that enacts this, well, we're not going to going to hold events there. And so I called the Speaker of the House in Florida and said, did you hear what they said? He said, well, <clears throat> we definitely have to get this done. You can't be cowed by these organizations, uh, but particularly by woke corporations from doing the right thing. So my view was throughout the whole time, we, we, we would protect our girls. It's discriminatory to force them to compete against biological males. The price of having a tournament is that uh, I have to deny equal opportunity to hundreds of thousands of young girls and women athletes throughout Florida. I am much more willing to stand up with the girls and to hell with these events, he added. Good for him. I think that's great. I, I think you should say not only are we not going to participate, we're not going to be part of the NCAA. We'll form our own athletic scholastic athletic organization. This is a huge development. On Tuesday morning, uh, One American News' Christine Bob, Christina Bob reported that delegations from Georgia, Alaska, and Colorado were inside the Veterans Memorial Coliseum for a tour of the historic Arizona audit process. They're now on the floor for a deep dive into this process in logistics. Legislators from these three states received a classroom-style briefing and are now on the floor to see firsthand how the process is run. These lawmakers are analyzing the audit to make any necessary fixes and implement a similar process at home. How about that? So it's not even Alaska and other, uh, not swing states are getting involved in this process. I think it'd be terrific if we ended up with nationwide audit of the election. Just let's just uh, dig out all the corruption that was involved in this whole process and <laughs> let's get this all fixed. Uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell on Tuesday, proclaimed the era of bipartisanship is over after talks broke down between the Biden administration and Republicans over infrastructure legislation. As you look at what the majority leader is in mind for June, it's pretty clear that the era of bipartisanship is over, he told reporters at the Capitol. We've passed six bills so far this year, significant bills on a bipartisan basis, bills that came out of committee that had buy-in from both sides, but I think that's coming to a screeching halt, said, the, said the McConnell. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said earlier Tuesday that talks seemed to be running into a brick wall. McConnell's comments came after President Joe Biden ended talks with a group of Republican senators on a big infrastructure package and started reaching out to senators on both parties as he strives to build bipartisan compromise on his top legislative priority. The president is walking away from talks with lead Republican negotiator Senator Shelley Moore Capito, after two more, uh, two spoke Tuesday, according to an administration official, uh, the president's uh, view is that the, she negotiated in good faith and he would welcome her into bipartisan talks. The breakdown comes as the two sides could not broker the divide over the scope of the president's sweeping infrastructure package. It's really, uh, it's not infrastructure, it's the Green New Deal is what it amounts to. Republicans offered $928 billion proposal, which included about $330 billion in new spending, but not as much as Biden's $1.7 trillion investment proposal for rebuilding the nation's roads, bridges, highways, and other infrastructure, windmills, sunbeams, all that nonsense, including VA hospitals and care centers. Talks broke down over two core issues, the official said. The Republican senators could not come up significantly in the dollar amount of the new investment or devise specific ways to pay for it. Biden rejected the GOP senator's suggestion of tapping unspent COVID money to fund the new infrastructure spending. At the time, Biden had uh, begun reaching out to other senators, including Republicans who are in part, part of a bipartisan group like Senator Mitt Romney. 
Uh, that is a meeting uh, on Tuesday at the Capitol to negotiate a fresh proposal. The president is expected to engage with lawmakers while he sits out this week for his G7 meeting, Group of Seven Industrialized Nations in Europe. And by the way, this is important. Senator Joe Manchin is resisting growing pressure from his fellow Democrats to go it alone on the President Biden's proposed $2.3 trillion tax and spending plan, even as infrastructure negotiations between the White House and a coalition of Republicans ran into the wall this week. Asked Tuesday whether he supported using budget reconciliation to pass the package known as the American Jobs Plan, Manchin said, I'm not even close to the thought process on that. We're just going to have to find an infrastructure bill that we can all agree on. Senator Joe Manchin, stay strong, man, because I can't imagine the pressure you are under. They're bringing out all the stops, including Al Sharpton and others. This is an interesting story. We won't have a chance to cover it today, but law enforcement officials from dozens of nations across the world executed one of the most sophisticated crime stings in history late on Monday and during the early morning on Tuesday, resulting in arrests of hundreds of criminals around the world. Hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about this later in the show because it is a really interesting story. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, we're going to visit with Bob Levy. He is the chairman of the Cato Institute. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabee's.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days. Days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social, a new refreshing social networking platform. Find out more by visiting choicesocial.us. Coming up, we're going to visit with Professor Andrew Joppa. Right now we have with us Bob Levy. He is a constitutional scholar and chairman of the Cato Institute. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Good to be with you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. Tell us about the Cato Institute. We are a libertarian think tank headquartered in Washington, D.C., and focused on free markets, private property, 
securing individual rights and limited government, cato.org on the web. Terrific organization. So, Bob, uh, for the last several weeks we've been talking about the Second Amendment and gun control. Uh, just one question before we move on to other topics. If you could implement one gun control proposal that might attract support, what would it be? Uh, the best of all options, which hasn't gotten a lot of public attention, uh, even though it would radically reduce gun violence, is to legalize drugs. You know, there are one and a half million drug arrests each year, more drug inmates than for all violent crimes combined, equal to about 50% of the federal prison population. So because drugs are illegal, the participants in the drug trade can't go to court to settle disputes, so they resolve their disputes by force, you know, on the streets mm -hmm. using guns. We have criminals and terrorists earning about $40 billion a year in the drug trade. We have the DEA with thousands of agents and support staff who could be redeployed to fight uh, real crime or, or uh, terrorism. The courts are clogged, the jails are overcrowded, the police are overburdened, we have public defenders that are overworked, and we have problems with racial discrimination uh, uh, with respect to our drug laws. And despite all of that, you know, cocaine and heroin uh, supplies are up. High school seniors say they can get marijuana whenever they want. Um, we really need to treat addiction like alcoholism as a medical health problem. And we, uh, we don't incarcerate uh, alcoholics. And like alcohol, it should be perfectly legal to sell drugs to adults but not to minors. And unlike tobacco, which reportedly kills about 400,000 people a year, but it's legal, yeah. Uh, marijuana, to my knowledge, doesn't kill anybody. So the, the drug war has been a total failure, and it's really increased gun violence uh, by a quantum amount. Uh, we need to get rid of the drug laws. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, uh, back be before uh, 1910, you could buy cocaine in a Montgomery Ward catalog. <laughs> it was, yeah. but, and at the time, uh, addiction was at about 4%. Now, after these drug wars and everything that's going on, the addiction rate's about 4%. So <laughs> it's, it's, uh, you make a great point. So what about the verdict? What's the verdict in those states that have legalized marijuana? Um, well, we've had recent legalization in a number of states, Colorado, Washington, and Oregon, and Alaska were, I think, the, for the first. There's been little or no rise in uh, in marijuana usage, possible declines in cocaine and heroin use, uh, because folks feel like they can um, get their high out of uh, marijuana without risking criminalization. Yeah. Uh, there's been little impact on violent crime, mixed evidence on traffic accidents, um, and that's consistent, I think, with medical research that um, is inconclusive regarding driving ability. But, you know, even if there were driver impairment from marijuana, uh, the solution is to prosecute driving under the influence of marijuana, right. just as we do with alcohol. We don't ban alcohol. We ban driving under the influence. And with respect to alcohol, by the way, you know, remember the 18th Amendment back in 1919, prohibition until 15 years later when it was repealed, it didn't stop drinking, and it certainly did increase violent crime. And the cost of that uh, in today's dollars, the cost of prohibition was about 500 million bucks a year. By comparison, the feds alone spend about $8 billion, billion with a B, uh, for drug enforcement. So we, we need to get rid of these drug laws, and and, uh, and it would have an enormous impact on gang-related, drug-related uh, gun use. So doesn't the opioid crisis prove the need for uh, strict regulation? Well, you know, the crisis isn't because, because doctors uh, goaded by the greedy drug companies are over-prescribing. Uh, less than 25% of the people using opioids for non-medical reasons have a prescription. The rest of them buy it on the black market. Uh, and prescriptions for high-dose opioids are down about 40% uh, over the last decade. Uh, overdoses, mostly from heroin and fentanyl, uh, continue to climb. So pressuring doctors to reduce opioid prescriptions has the unintended consequence of driving patients 
to the black market where they get laced opioids and heroin mm-hmm. that's cheaper and easier uh, to obtain. So, uh, interestingly, the, the opioid crisis is less serious in the states uh, that have legalized uh, marijuana. This, this war on drugs has been an unmitigated disaster, and one of the pernicious byproducts has been rampant gun violence uh, in the inner cities. I think you know, legalization should be a no-brainer. Yeah. Who's pushing uh, this drug war on drugs? I mean, who benefits from this? Well, there's mixed views among the law enforcement uh, groups. Some are in favor of, of uh, continuing with the existing regime. Some are in favor of uh, legalization. A lot of the re- religious right uh, groups uh, are opposed to legalization on moral grounds. Um, <clears throat> so there's a... Uh, you, you can't really separate this easily by political party, mm-hmm. although I, I think it is fair to say that there are more conservatives that are interested in preserving a, a, an illegal regime and more liberals in favor of legalization, but that correlation is imperfect. Mm-hmm. And I think that it, it, uh, it would be a bipartisan support for legalization if the public were educated about the deleterious effects of the drug war. Yeah, so are there compromise proposals that gun controllers and gun rights advocates might agree to? Yeah, I, I in fact, published uh, some years ago a, a libertarian case for expanding gun background checks um, in the New York Times. I endorsed the uh, Manchin-Toomey uh, compromise bill. That's, that's Manchin, who's the uh, key guy in the in the Senate nowadays. The most powerful um, man in the world. <laughs> a powerful man, right. And that bill would have extended background checks to cover all gun show and Internet purchases. Yeah. The, the bill failed to get sufficient Senate support in 2013 and again in 2015. But today, uh, both Manchin and Toomey are willing to reintroduce the bill if President Biden were to endorse it. So far, uh, no word from the president. I, I continue to believe that that mansion to me compromise uh, would be a step in the right direction. So uh, what did uh, Manchin and Toomey offer to gun enthusiasts? Well, the bill allowed interstate handgun sales through dealers uh, under roughly the same rules that now govern uh, long gun sales. A current law doesn't permit residents of one state to buy handguns mm-hmm. out of state, and relaxing that restriction would be a major concession uh, to the gun rights uh, community. And and second, Manchin Toomey confirmed that a registry of firearms by the Attorney General would be prohibited and added a 15-year prison term uh, for violators. The, the bill also set a 48-hour limit for performing background checks, and it would become 24 hours after four years. That's a two-thirds reduction from the current uh, 72-hour limit. And, and there was a bonus Gun buyers would be exempt from background checks if they had a concealed carry permit that was issued within the last five years. <clears throat> Manchin Toomey permitted uh, transportation of firearms across state lines unless the weapon itself uh, were otherwise barred. The weapon ha- would have to be unloaded and would have to meet restrictions on accessibility, but the state laws against unlicensed possession would be preempted by the federal law. And Manchin Toomey would improve this NICS database, providing $400 million bucks in funding, denying federal grants to states that wouldn't cooperate, and clarifying the applicability of these privacy regulations so we had better mental health data, which, of course, is what we really need to, con- to uh, control some of these mass shootings that take place. Bob Levy, again, the chairman of the Cato Institute. Bob, this is so interesting. I really appreciate your commentary here on the show. I just refer our listeners to your website, cato.org, C-A-T-O dot org. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be with you, Bob. Thank you so much, Bob. All right, coming up, Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josepha Savaz. He'll be joining us. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
Blue Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, bold fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste, a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Old Naples. Golfshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgrowing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit gulfshoreplayhouse.org. That's gulfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. I hope you'll visit the website, gulfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Professor Larry Bell. Right now we have with us Professor Andrew Joppa, author of Josephus of Oz. Andy, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Andy. So typically we start off with a, a few gems, of uh, th- things that you've been thinking about. What's on your mind, Andy? Well, I have some good news that I'll get to in a second. And uh, I'm going to start out with uh, two things of interest without a lot of comment. Today, Bob, is Professor Love Day, another day created that men can mess up. Uh, so I'm going <laughs> to tell my wife right now, honey, I love you. Okay, I got that out of the way, Bob. <laughs> So I don't want to mess this one up like I do Valentine's Day. Another thing of just interest is that the number one tennis player in the world is is Jokovic, and the number the MVP of the NBA is also a Serb. That's uh, Nikola Jokic, and so I just just find that curious that a country with eight million people produces the the top end in tennis and the top end in in basketball. And if we look at the finals of the French Open tennis uh, circumstance. Uh, every one of the people in the semifinals is a uh, is an Eastern European. So I, I don't know what to say about all that, except I think it's it's curious that Eastern Europe and Western Russia uh, dominate the uh, the international sports scene. It's just a, a curiosity piece more than anything that I can specifically draw any inference from. So any comment about that? Bob? Well, uh, my comment, my knee jerk reaction. Uh, is that uh, there's probably a greater emphasis on starting early for kids in those areas in the uh, in the sk- in the games of basketball and, and tennis. Uh, you know, if you get an early start, you typically and you have an organized program. Typically, it has good results. I think that's true. It's not only the early start, but it's the the isolated early start. In other words, they're not they're not involved with soccer, tennis, golf, you know, handball. They're just pretty much they focus on one specific area, and I think that's. Uh, that's how the superstars emerge. But the Eastern European domination of uh, of tennis, for example, particularly in the women's ranks, is just a, an overwhelming phenomenon. I, I no longer can pronounce any name in any <laughs> French uh, final uh, <laughs> possible competition. But now the good news, the good news, and we have plenty of good news to talk about today. The Supreme Court, in a surprising nine to zero decision that was authored by Elena Kagan, Uh, has denied those with uh, temporary protected status, denied them the right to get green cards. Now, uh, this, to me, was uh, a remarkable decision for for two reasons. First of all, that it happened at all. Second, 
that it was a it was a unanimous decision of the Supreme Court. So I think there's a source of optimism there that maybe the Supreme Court, including their liberal faction, are beginning to push back against the Democrats uh, having suggested the uh, the possibility of court packing. This is similar to what happened during the Roosevelt administration, is the, uh, the court pushed back when he threatened to uh, also pack the courts during his administration. So uh, that, that's good news, that we're seeing that kind of unified action uh, by the Supreme Court, by both factions, the liberal and the legal. So yeah. uh, that is a good news story. Another good oh, news story... Andy, let me, let me just uh, stop you here, though. The implications for this Supreme Court decision, I think, are pretty massive in terms of the illegals now that have been permitted to come into the United States. So what are they going to do? They, they, can't, they can't collect welfare. Maybe they can. I don't know. But uh, it, it seems to me their options are limited. Well, I think that it does that. It, right now, it only affects, I believe, a number of 400,000 illegals that have protected uh, status. Uh, but the implication, as you're suggesting, Bob, beyond that are, are, are pretty dramatic. So yeah. uh, this could be the starting point of a, uh, a general move towards uh, legalizing or controlling at least our, our immigration pro process. Now, perhaps that's too optimistic, but uh, I think uh, it's a start, and I think that we can build on that. And, uh, you know, I, I, it's hard to imagine a unified process in the Supreme Court taking us forward, but this one decision, uh, coupled with what you're suggesting, I think might lead us forward. Uh, another interesting story, and I think an important story coming out of Texas, was uh, uh, yesterday in, in votes for mayors in, in, uh, in, uh, in three Texas cities, particularly Arlington and Fort Worth, uh, all elected GOP mayors. Uh, if you take Fort Worth specifically, only one-third of Fort Worth is Anglo. So you're looking at a strong Hispanic movement uh, by yeah. every estimation every every uh, uh, expert let's call them in these areas is saying that there is a strong hispanic movement at least in texas towards the gop so again another another good news story bob that is um, outstanding another story news. that's that's good news although i'll have to build it into a good news story is the uh, the january 6th riot has been estimated by the people doing this kind of thing to have created a million five hundred thousand dollars in damage now what is the good news about that the good news is bob that that illustrates the absolute limited amount of damage that happened in the capital uh it, it a million five hundred thousand in today's world is nothing the it cost a million five hundred thousand to build a temporary police facility in Minneapolis after it was burnt down. Uh, the the cost of the Civil War was two years of American gross domestic product. Uh, so we're looking at a so when people are saying this is the most dramatic attack on our democracy since the Civil War, it is nothing approximating that. And as far as damage, if that can be a way of estimating the the implication of this event. The damage was, for all practical purpose purposes, minimal. Yeah. Uh, one final, one final uh, good news story. Uh, Dennis Prager um, has recently authored a piece which he said the only specific thing that we can do as a unified action uh, to push back against the left is to pull our students out of the public schools and the universities. Now, why is that a good news story? I had recently penned a an essay called yada 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 which uh, essentially the implication bob was uh, a lot of talk without action so whenever i see someone suggesting a course of action i think that is a a, a positive to be uh, to be uh, assessed uh, prager also has and i totally agree with him that this would be a short-term uh, process in other words once the uh, the funding dried up as a result of students leaving the public schools and the universities uh, it's to me, it's undoubtedly a situation where the, these schools, the public schools and the universities, uh, would somehow change their, uh, their, uh, their educational process, which is absolutely destroying the minds of American children and young adults as they enter, as they leave the university system, Bob. Uh, it's it's great to see it's great to see the uh, parents that are pushing back at school board meetings. You know, just yesterday, Cuyahoga County decided to f ditch the masks. They're now voluntary as opposed to mandatory. And uh, in other words, we're beginning to see more and more good decisions. And I think people are beginning to feel the heat. Uh, I'm talking about school board uh, members. 
when it comes to how parents are feeling, their, their voices now seem to matter a lot more than they used to. Well, I totally agree with you. I, again, as one of my uh, areas in the yada, yada, yada essay file was the fact that we can't build undue optimism on uh, what I have referred to as anomalies. So uh, these particular pushbacks by parents uh, are, I think, categorically anomalies at this point. But you are right. They're growing in their number. If these things can reach a, a, a level where they uh, apply pressure uh, to, the, to the school boards, I think we might see this beginning to change. But it'll take a lot more than we're seeing we're seeing at this point. But yeah. uh, these are sources of optimism. The Supreme Court's ruling, the Hispanic vote in Texas, uh, the, the limited damage from the January 6th right, and again, a course of action suggested by Dennis Prager, which is pull your kids out of the public schools and, and the universities. Bob. Yeah, let me, let me uh, pile on just one other good news. I mean, what we're seeing right now is that the uh, support for President Biden's agenda, I'm going to call it a leftist, socialist, communist agenda, is crumbling. And it's not, the, and now with Manchin standing up saying, you know, I'm going to support uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, filibuster, and uh, he's not going to support, he, he's only going to support something that, uh, a bill that will be uh, bipartisan. All of a sudden, there is no support for this agenda. I mean, it, that is good news. I, it certainly is good news, and I, you know, again, I'm not uh, notoriously known as, as an optimist, but I think at this point, Bob, we can see uh, a, a, a shift that's taking place. Um, whether or not it continues or grows, we have to wait and see. But at this point, certainly the momentum is in the right direction, and uh, uh, if this can persist, I think we have a chance of, of, of still saving America. But it will require a persistence uh, that uh, that has not been part of the American public persona over the last 10 or 12 years. Bob. Yeah, let me just add one other piece of good, good news, too. Have you seen that the number of uh, states now that are beginning to take a look at what's going on in Maricopa County, considering doing their own, they're, they're visiting Maricopa County, they audit there, and uh, uh, they're considering their own. To me, the best outcome of all would be the entire country, all states in the union, decide they want to conduct a forensic audit of their election results. I think it's necessary. Again, I've mentioned this on, on your show before, but there's this constant uh, pressure for ease of voting and uh, with almost no concern for legality. Uh, it is cited by the left, of course, that uh, that Trump is only concerned about his own election results in 2020. But that isn't true. What Trump is concerned with is the is the end result of a of a of a legal election process being reestablished right. by assessing what happened in November of 2020. So, if the nation as a whole moves in that direction, certainly it will not include the very red states, uh, the very blue states. I'm sorry, uh, but if we can get that, I mean, it's, it throws out an interesting question. And if at the end of these audits, it is uh, undoubtable, undoubtedly a situation where the uh, November elections of 2020 were obviously illegal. Does anything happen? Does, is there any end result of that? And uh, that question uh, is, has been asked, and there's really no answer to it at this point. If we can document the, purely, uh, the, the pure illegality of that election, and it would show obviously that Trump did win, as I believe he did. Uh, then what happens at that point? Well, so it, it, it's, it is, it's it an is, interesting question. Yeah, we, are, we would be in a constitutional crisis. I think it would come down to the Supreme Court. It would go to, uh, I would imagine that Trump would sue in federal court uh, for uh, being, having the election stolen. Uh, he would win, uh, I would guess, oh, and then it would go to the Supreme Court. <laughs> we'll see what happens from there. Well, I think, you know, you, you've highlighted certainly the, uh, the major implication of it. Um, I think the, uh, the associated chaos with that kind of process that would possibly result in the overturning of the November 2020 elections would, would create uh, 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 heretofore unseen rioting in America. But there are times you have to risk that end result uh, as compared to yielding to, uh, to illegality. And we've done that consistently in the last four or five years in America. So um, I'm optimistic that any result that shows that uh, illegality occurred, and it's a valid audit, uh, I think needs to be exposed and needs to be um, a part of the American awareness. And so uh, let's let's see how that happens and how it plays out. Um, uh, oh, I just was figuring out where I was going to go from there. <laughs> yeah, you probably, I wanted to hear I wanted to hear your thoughts on uh, two books that you've read. 
One is unrestricted warfare, China's master plan to destroy America, and Maverick, a biography of Thomas Sewell. Uh, I don't know which one you'd like to start off with, but uh, I would like to hear what, uh, chi- about your reading of the China's master plan. Well, it's a book I've referred to in the past, and I've only read excerpts from it in the past, but uh, I, I just sat down over the weekend and, and read the entire book, uh, Unrestricted Warfare, a subtitle, The Chinese Master Plan to Destroy the United States, authored by, um, supposedly, now this has not absolutely been confirmed, but the uh, the authors are Kuo and Wang, two colonels in the uh, in the uh, PLA, the, uh, the People's Liberation Army of China. Huh. It is an absolutely brilliant dissertation, Bob, on the, uh, on the projection of war. Uh, they build it against the, uh, the, the desert storm warfare of America against Iraq in the deserts of Kuwait uh, and the implication of, of, of applied technology and what the world learned and what the United States learned uh, from, that, from that conflict. Uh, what uh, is suggested by these Chinese colonels is what China learned is that, uh, that if they ever enter into a major conflict, uh, out of absolute necessity, with the United States, that essentially they will have to use uh, unrestricted warfare. Now, I've referred to this concept before. Unrestricted warfare means war by other means than than uh, than, uh, than military uh, combat in the field. Right. Uh, now, that could be economic. It can be, can, can be propaganda. It can be financial. It can be biochemical. It can be viral. Uh, so if we look at the, the implication of what they were suggesting, and by the way, in this book, they strongly um, make a, a prediction of the actions of, of Osama bin Laden. And they, in one sentence, they say we, uh, that America must be concerned with the, the explosive potentials of bin Laden and the security of the World Trade Center. So this is 1999 that wow. they're authoring this. So uh, that gives the book a certain amount of prescient legitimacy. Yeah. Uh, but the book lays out very clearly that the wars of the future, the major wars of the future, will be cyber wars. There'll be viral wars, biochemical wars. Uh, but there's almost no chance uh, that there'll be field combat that will be in the tradition of, of World War II, certainly not in the tradition of World War I. Uh, but if you read the book, uh, beyond all of these implications, uh, it is a brilliant treatise on the, uh, the projected art of war into the, into the 21st century. So I would recommend anyone who is interested in some uh, some quality reading, not light reading, but quality reading. That uh, unrestricted warfare is certainly is certainly worth their worth their investment of time, Bob. Yeah, thank you for that, Andy. It's a good recommendation. And now let's talk, uh, turn to Thomas Sewell. By the way, uh, there's a video uh, uh, documentary on Thomas Sewell. It's about an hour long. It's really outstanding. I forgot who put it out, but I'm sure if you Google Thomas Sewell, uh, the video or the life. Uh, it is fantastic. But you you uh, you found a book that uh, Maverick, a biography of Thomas Sewell. Tell us about it. Well, Jason O'Reilly, wrote an excellent book. Uh, it's called Maverick, uh, the biography of uh, of Thomas Sowell. I, I love the book. I, I've read almost everything that uh, that Sowell wrote after, let's say, 1980. Before 1980, Sowell was a practicing Marxist. So, uh, but he, he obviously grew out of that as his awareness, uh, his awareness grew. So uh, post-1980, uh, I've read almost everything that Sowell wrote. I use them extensively in my, in my classrooms. Uh, for those that are not aware of this, Thomas Sowell is an African-American. Um, in my classes, uh, very few of my students, African-Americans, ever heard of Thomas Sowell, mm-hmm. which is was quite amazing for me to hear that here's the most widely published and perhaps the most widely respected uh, economist philosopher in America and very few people, very few African-Americans. And that was about half of my population of students ever heard of Thomas Sowell. Let me just make make my point here that uh, I seldom, if ever, have disagreed with Thomas Sowell. But in one of his positions, I I have to find and I do find disagreement. Uh, Sowell says that the uh, current deficiency of performance, intellectual performance by the African-American in terms of IQ and SAT test, almost almost any standardized performance uh, area, is all caused by uh, deprivations in socioeconomic status. What Sowell says, if we look at the uh, early performance in the 20th century of the Poles and the, and the Jews, they were also of the same low level, but once their socioeconomic status improved, 
uh, also uh, went, went up was their IQ scores and their, their scores on all standardized performance areas. Now, uh, Sowell then extracts from that that we can then expect that movement, uh, the same movement, in the African-American community. Now, is that possibly true? Yes, but it's, it's a total variance uh, from Sowell's normal approach of empirically based evidence to make his position. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a hypothetical entirely. It ignores, for example, the consistent difference between whites and Asians as it pertains to these same standardized tests. It ignores that even in, Af in, uh, in, in uh, uh, African or black-dominated countries in Africa, that the same, the, the same scores are, are being experienced. So there's no necessary reason to believe uh, that black performance will ever come up to the level of white or white to Asian. Now, why is that important? This is on average, Bob. It has nothing to do, absolutely nothing to do with the individual. But it's, it's an important consideration because most of the assessments of systemic racism, racism in general, are built on average outcomes. For example, if we look at average economic outcomes, average uh, educational outcomes, all of these show low-end or bottom-end uh, African-American performance that is always cited as racism. If, in fact, there is a limited variance, negative variance, that is innate with the average African-American scores, that is enough in itself to account for all the deficiencies that are being experienced economically and educationally. Now, let me just highlight again, this has nothing to do with any individual African-American. This is an on average type of consideration. So it's not yeah. a, a negative statement about any African-American. But this average performance, if it's slightly below whites, it is enough in itself, Bob, to totally explain all the variations we see in negative outcomes. So uh, I would add to that. I'm not sure I'm in disagreement or agreement with you, but I do believe that cultural background is extremely important in terms of how people perform. Uh, I, for example, I'm certainly drawing a, uh, I'm making a generalization here, but uh, I think Asian families think it's really important that you do well in science and in math. So they raise their kids to really focus on, you know, doing well in science and math. Overgeneralization, I get it, but when the uh, when families operate and believe in that, <laughs> you get that kind of an outcome. So uh, I would just say that uh, I'm not sure that. Uh, I get what you're saying, but I, I think that culture has a lot to do with it. Well, there's no doubt. I mean, there's no one would deny that. I've always used culture as a as a multiplier of of uh, innate characteristics. In other words, if if intelligence is uh, is a innate characteristic on a score of one to ten, it's an eight, and then the culture is the multiplier. So, if the culture is a high level, that multiplies it out to a higher performance level. But again, that innate characteristic never never leaves the the equation. I think it's totally unreasonable, Bob, in a world where we know that there are dramatic physical differences of every sort uh, between the races. Uh, these are not negative comments, Bob. They're just obvious realities uh, that there would not be any variation in, in intellectual or, or the, the ability to reason or use rational thought. And again, these are not comments about, about African Americans individually. This is on average. And this is the problem, for example, that Charles Murray had. Charles Murray in his bell curve pointed out multiple times that he was not talking about any individual black right. so a minor variation on the uh, on the average uh, that would account for deficiency so uh, that cultural multiplier is there what you pointed out what soul points out what i pointed out but again if we if we accept uh, as a blanket statement that uh, the the hypothetical yeah. that blacks given the proper socioeconomic environment and cultural environment will in fact uh, eventually match up with whites or whites with Asians, uh, and that is not true, Bob. Let's presume that that is not true. Then we're going to have a persistent negative yeah. in terms of outcome differentiation that will always be explained by white racism. So, Andy, uh, Andy, uh, with this. Uh, Andy, uh, here we, uh, we've uh, run out of time before we've run out of topic to talk about <laughs> as usual. <laughs> but I just genuinely appreciate your commentary here in the show. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll talk next week. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Coming up, we're going to visit with Professor Larry Bell. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the uh, Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. Do you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery in Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf, golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me and he'll help you too. Listen to the Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on, banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulubee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to BobHarden at Hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-389 or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host... Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. We have with us Professor Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture, big player in the uh, space uh, program back in the day. Uh, he's also the author of many books. Uh, his latest is just so fascinating, What Makes Humans Truly Exceptional. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Bob, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. My pleasure indeed, Professor. Uh, you read a column for uh, Newsmax. It's called On Point. This week, or your latest column, is Beijing Power Plays Poised to Pull Plug on Prospects to Go All Electrics. This is a really fascinating discussion of the not-so-obvious impediments to going <laughs> all electric. Maybe you could tell us about it. Yeah, Bob, in a nutshell, and guess that's a good uh, metaphor because it's uh, pretty nutty. We're, uh, you know, we're going to this all-out crazy climate stuff, and uh, the notion is that we're going to somehow change our, transform our energy uh, dependence and production from 80% we get from oil and natural gas to uh, going all-electric and windmills and sunbeams that provide less than 3%, both in the U.S. as well as globally. Meanwhile, while we give up 80% of our of our uh, hydropower, or uh, the uh, hydrocarbon power, same time we're going to develop a dependency on rare earth materials that necessary for the batteries and the windmills and the solar panels. We're going we're gonna to depend on, on China mm. that, that provides 80% of those of those. Uh, rare earth materials. It's not that we don't have rare earth materials in this country, it's just that environmentalists, you know, won't don't want mining of them. So we, we don't have any we have one mine but uh, we have no no processing and so we 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 trade eighty percent of the energy that we have a, an abundance of for eighty percent that we don't have. Mm. And then on top of that uh, this so called all electric future. We're going to put all these uh, electric vehicles on the grid, which again require more lithium and cadmium and all these these metals, but also put a tremendous 
amount of uh, additional uh, demand on, on the power grid, which is already old and rickety and uh, almost, you know, it's, it's, uh, we've seen from what happened here in Texas with, with our windmill disaster this past winter and uh, with brownouts in California and so on, we see where that's going. So mm-hmm. it's an absolutely crazy situation. And just totally unsustainable. It's just uh, very frightening to think that we would take a, go from being energy independent, which is what we were. I don't know if we still are, but we were uh, during the Trump administration to uh, now, for example, uh, getting out of the uh, Alaskan uh, fields uh, for drilling and uh, for, for no good reason, and then being totally dependent on China and other countries for uh, the materials that we need to go, quote-unquote, all electric. So it, it makes us, it, it's a, I would call that a national, national uh, security concern. Yeah, it's a national security disgrace. And on top of that, uh, to, to make matters even more total, totally uh, nutty, you know, we, you know, we have an administration, whoever that is, we're not really sure who's, pulling all the puppet strings, but we have an administration that cancels the uh, the uh, uh, the pipeline, the uh, Keystone pipeline, and and also the drilling on uh, uh, federal lands and waters, and we give a go ahead to the Nord Stream two pipeline under the Baltic that Putin wants to complete. I mean, take the sanctions off of that and allow uh, uh, Russia in the, in the uh, Arctic, you know, the submarine region of Russia to provide oil to Germany, which is energy starved because they put all these damn windmills in, in Germany and they, and they have intermittent, unreliable power. So, so explain to me how that helps anything where... We have a pipeline under the Baltic going to Germany and Europe, and we have cancellation of, as you mentioned, ANWR uh, permits, as well as the Keystone XL pipeline and uh, drilling and fracking on this country. It's absolutely a bizarre policy. Now, professor, I can't explain it to you. <laughs> I have no explanation. But I, I will say this, that, that uh, part of the added concern is these windmills turned out to be Cuisinarts. They just, uh, you know, splice and dice the birds. They're killing birds uh, right and left. I mean, I can't imagine how the environmentalists, at one point they want to support this whole notion of alternative energy. On the other hand, uh, we're seeing a lot of destruction as a result. Yeah, and those, those, what, they don't, what they don't tell you is that these 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 turbines, which are huge, mm-hmm. have about a fifteen year life, yeah. and and they're they're junk, and uh, and and the blades, these huge huge turbine blades, three hundred feet long, wind up in landfills. And you can't; they're enormously difficult. You can't really crush them, get rid of them. So they fill landfills. You have all these batteries, and they're not they're not designed, including the Tesla batteries, to be recycled. So you have all this these rare earth, you know. Um, Materials leaching out then into the soil and landfills is an it's an absolute you know ecological disaster. Apart from as you mentioned the birds it, and and the dirty little secret is nobody wants to live near these windmills because they have low frequency sound. They make people really sick. The sound penetrates through those walls and, and, and of houses and 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 uh, people who live near them hate them. Their their property values. Are, are destroyed. Yeah. And so there's, it's just terribly naive. Indeed it is. Professor Larry Bell, author, his latest book, What Makes Humans Truly Exceptional. It's a great read. I encourage you to get a copy. Uh, also, visit Newsmax.com and uh, Professor Bell's column on point. Professor, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's always a great pleasure. Thank you so much, Professor. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Tomorrow, we're going to visit with Dr. Bob McClure. He is the president of the James Madison Institute. 
We'll visit with Keith Flaw, co-founder of the Florida Citizens Alliance. Seton Motley is the president and founder of Less Government and uh, former mayor of Naples, Bill Barnett. We will visit with Bill as well. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com.